KMTT, Ki Mitzion Tetzay Torah, welcome back. And today is Wednesday, and in this summer's man, the Wednesday share will be given by Harav Moshe Tarragon, a share on ethical character, Midot, ethical attributes and character. Harav Moshe Tarragon. David HaMelech writes in Tehillim, Ivdu Hashem B'Simcha, reminding us that joy, a state of happiness, contentment, general satisfaction, gratification, is the baseline of our Avodah Hashem. There are certain moments in the year in which that attitude is incremented or elaborated. V'samachta b'chagecha, a person has a responsibility, as best as he or she can during a yamtuf to augment simcha, the Rambam in Hilchus Yamtav Perak Vav actually outlines, interestingly enough, one would expect Simcha to be an experience which is highly subjective and therefore incompatible with halachic legislation or codification. But yet the Rambam describes certain varieties, certain stimulants for the experience of Simcha. Shabbos doesn't demand Simcha. Shabbos demands Oneg. Oneg is not just joy, but joy accessed or reached through physical indulgent, indulging or physical indulgement. On Yantif, in theory, a person, according to most positions, is allowed to fast if that provides the type of spiritual joy which he or she sees fit for Yantif, whereas on Shabbos, fasting is absolutely forbidden because the mitzvah is one of Oneg, not of Simcha. But in general, even during the day-to-day operations, a person, the midah, the trade of Simcha, is the baseline for our religious experiences. Um, the Rambam writes, as well as many others, evident in various sections of Tanakh, that nevuah, prophecy, cannot evolve out of an agitated or disgruntled heart, and that simcha is the source of prophecy, of, so to speak, higher spiritual consciousness. Um, there, in, when we read through Tanakh, um, and of course, we are only familiar with 40-some-odd Nevi'im, those whose Nevi'ahs were recorded. But the Gemara already says that there were thousands and thousands of Nevi'im. And the entire era was one of Nevi'ah. And before the prophets could uh, deliver their prophecy, they had to create an environment which would allow prophetic uh, influence or inspiration to descend from Shemayim. The Gemara in Shabbos, Taflaman Amad Beis, comments, Ein has Shechina Shara, Elamitach Simcha, Vachal Hanavim, Lohim is Nabim Bachalisha Yurtsu, Shein Hanavua Shara, Lomitach Atzlus, Vlomitach Atzvus, Elamitach Simcha. Nevua can only emerge from the state of Simcha. And the Gemara quotes the Pasuk in Malachim Beis, Paragimel, Vihayakin again, Hamen again, Vatiyalav Yad Hashem. Evidently, all these Nevim in order to uh, prompt or in some ways uh, initiate their nevuah, so they would bring musical instruments and create that ambience of joy and celebration to allow simcha and thereby to um, stimulate nevuah. Not just nevuah, but creativity in general. is a very interesting Rambam in Hilchus Talmud Torah, where the Rambam describes the highest form of learning, the highest level of learning, inductive, analytical, comparative, 
In short, what would be known in the modern context is lambdas. The Gemara Kiddushin describes a three-part division. A person should allocate their time, a third of the day dedicated to Tanakh, a third of the day dedicated to Mishnah, a third of the day dedicated to Gemara. The Rambam re-landscapes this three-part division and suggests that a person should indeed allocate equal time to all areas of Torah, at least initially, developmentally, when he's beginning his career in learning. But ultimately, once the baseline has been established, and that, of course, is a very um, provocative concept because many people, most people, never reach the baseline of knowledge of Torah. But once that baseline is accomplished and achieved, a person should dedicate all of his time not just to reading Gemara, but to analyzing, to inferring, to comparing, to building, to create cre- creative, cognitive, analytic thought. The Rambam recognizes that not all creativity is created equal, not all people will be capable of the same degrees of creativity. And the Rambam offers a prescription for how to become creative. He says, Two traits for creative thought are, first of all, breadth, imaginative thought. A person needs a broad field of vision, of exposure, of um, knowledge and experience. Creativity typically is a product of analogy, association, fluid analogy, comparing one to another. The more narrow the field of vision, the less creativity will spark because there's less to compare knowledge and information to. Creativity has to be built on a broad-ranging grasp and exposure. So it has to have rachav asalev, and not just rachav asalev based on what the person has been exposed to, but also how that's touched his soul, how that's touched his his own experience, whether that's created indeed a stretched and elastic imagination or much more narrow and confined personality. The second trait the Ramam demands for creativity is Yishuv Hadas. A person can create an environment of confrontation, um, disgruntlement, anger, um, um, combat, confrontation. A person needs quiet space, tranquility, serenity, so that from that quiet, from that relaxed state of mind, can spring forth creative thought. This is, of course, a very interesting and somewhat even questionable. Many people have suggested that true creativity stems from the clash of ideas, and there's a lot of creativity that develops from the inner turmoil within a soul. But in any event, at some level, creativity can only be achieved on the platform of space, stability, serenity, a person who's constantly in chaos, constantly disorganized, creativity will never flow. Virginia Woolf, one of the uh, well-known authors, English authors of the first part of the 20th century, wrote a book, a very famous book, A Room of One's Own, in which she claimed the basic premise was that women can only start to be creative as they became emancipated, as they became enlightened, as they re- achieved space and grounds which they had never enjoyed. They never had, I say space, I don't mean physical, geographical space. I mean just space as a person, identity, perspective. So uh, the Gemara in Shabbos describes the requisite state of Simcha necessary for the installment of Nevoah. We no longer live in an era of prophecy, but the same statement could be rendered about general creative thought and certainly creativity within the world of Torah. Um, happiness comes in many forms, many varieties. It's not just the gaiety and the mirth, the celebration and the joy alluded to by the Gemara in Shabbos, necessary for the Avodah Hashem, which David HaMelech speaks of, 
the Nevoah, which the Gemara speaks of, the creative thought, which the Rambam alludes to, the Simcha, so to speak, which was so heavily emphasized in so many Hasidic circles as a response to the presumed desiccation and sterility of the classic, um, what one would call the classic Orthodox establishment, the Hasidim valued the, the experience of joy and of Simcha, actually allowed and even encouraged the use of external stimulants to a degree, in moderation. But Simcha is also a trait joy, satisfaction experienced in more moderate or uh, more um, balanced modalities of the human experience and of the religious experience. Chazal say, someone who's satisfied. Samech b'chelko doesn't mean a person experiences or feels acute simcha at the uh, talent, at the opportunities, at the assets and resources that he's been delivered. It means he feels satisfaction, he's comfortable, he's, he's satiated. doesn't always ask why, isn't seething with jealousy or envy at another person's lot or another person's potential. But is comfortable and confident and is driven to maximize the assets he's been given rather than compare himself constantly, disfavorably, so to speak, and angrily and, and uh, enviously to others. Um... Chazal contrast, Bilam and Avram. Kol it's a mission in Perkeyavos, a person who has three traits, is considered a Talmud of Avram, a disciple of Avram. One of the traits is an Ayin Tova, generosity. One of the traits is um, Nefesh Shvela, humility. But another trait is Ruach Nemucha. And part of Ruach Nemucha is not just humility, but satisfaction, comfort. We sense in Bilam a bit of an avarice or a greed, constantly wanting more, whether it's more political clout, more gold coins, more of a um, prophetic stature to announce himself as the knower of God's will, Yodea Da'as Elyon. Very ambitious. Now, ambition itself is an important trait. It drives general human productivity, human accomplishment. Certainly is at the seat of much of our religious accomplishment. But we certainly do detect various individuals who suffered from uh, too much ambition. Not enough humility, and not just humility, but not enough satisfaction with the, in some ways, sizable opportunities which they were afforded. Karach is one such example. Um, the the Medrash asks, why was Karach so ambitious? Why was he so foolish? Mara l'shtusazah. How could he challenge the authority of Moshe Rabbeinu Yishelukim? So the, the Medrash says, Eino hit aso. His eye fooled him. His eye deceived him. He saw that his descendants were bound for glory. He saw that his descendant would be Shmuel. And he reasoned, if my descendants are so um, surpassing, then I must be destined for similar greatness and similar opportunity. And this excess of ambition drove his Ill, ill-conceived and ill-fated Revolution and rebellion against Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, Chazal speak of the Nachash. It's a very interesting medrash about the Nachash. One version of the Nachash's a mistake was he saw Adam and Chava relaxing in the Garden of Eden, enjoying each other's company, enjoying uh, various experiences, and uh, became envious, became jealous. Another version is it wasn't the jealousy as much as the ambition. He said, "Well, I'm going to." rule the world and rule all the animals and get rid of 
Adam and Mary Chava and be the king of the world and the king of the universe. And it wasn't so much the jealousy as much as the reckless and unrestrained ambition. Um, presumably, he was the only animal who actually had cognitive speech. And in many ways, that could have been the source of satisfaction and, and, and contentment. But his sizable opportunity bred um, inconquerable or irrepressible ambition, and that ambition led him to his um, fateful mistake, one which reduced his status beneath all the animals from such a high position, very similar in many respects to Karach, structurally. And Karach also was, was a member of the ruling class, he was an aristocrat, he was wealthy, he was, afflu- he was influential, and that very affluence and influence drove him mad to incite a mutiny against Moshe Rabbeinu. Similar, um, similar connotations, similar attitudes are sensed in Chazal's treatment of the Nachash. So, um, Simcha doesn't just have to be expressed or associated with that deep, so to speak, excess joy, merriment, happiness. Chazal recognized Simcha as a very quiet comfort, security, um, in modern English, we may call it poise. Poise is someone who recognizes their own talent and perhaps also acknowledge their own limitations. And that combination of talent plus limitation renders poise. A person who doesn't recognize their own talent is engaged in the great myth of self-denial, assuming, presuming that self-denial equals humility, and self-denial does not equal humility. Poise is probably a good phrase for humility. A person realizes their talent and their opportunities. They also realize their limitations, what they are and what they're not, and they operate well and try to excel within those limitations. Um, ultimately, joy, either the effusive, intense, passionate form, or the more mild, quiet, stable, and enduring form of a Samech B'chalko, they're not just preconditions for religious experience, as Sigmar and Shabbos alludes to, but they're also results. Pasuk in Tehillim, Pekudei Hashem Yisharim Mesamche Leif, Mitzvah Hashem Bara, Mirasei person recognizes the great redeeming value of religion, of Avodah Hashem, of Talmud Torah. Joy is not the cause of religious experience, but the result. The learning Torah person should feel a degree of simcha. Performing mitzvahs, David HaMelech uh, describes this in Tehillim Yutes. Yeshaya writes about it, Zosos is Bashem, Tagiel Nashi Belokai, David HaMelech writes again, Sasanachi Elim Rasecha, Kimotse Shalorav. So joy is not just the precondition, but presumably the, the result of recognizing the redeeming value of religion and the more successful person performs religion, the greater Tzidkus, presumably the greater Simcha. David Melch also writes, Or Simcha, person that feels greater tzidkos and greater yashar salev is able to sense the joy. In one place in Hilchas when the Rambam tries to describe Avas Hashem, Hilchas Tshuva Perak Yud, so the Rambam writes, a person who serves a Kaddish Baruch Hu based on Avas Hashem is a person who is disinterested in schar, isn't afraid of Onesh, but serves their bonish alone based on a a compelling sense that religion is redemptive to the human condition. The Rambam's Lashon is Osa Ms. Mipneshu Ms. A person does what's right because it's right, not because of any ulterior motive or desire for reward or fear of penalty. And that causes Ava. He recognized that the system of mitzvahs and Torah, which are Baruch Hu, 
endowed me with, grants me immortality, grants me eternity. Delivered us from a life of meaninglessness into a life of meaning, from a life of, uh, of frustration to a life of redemption. And that should be the greatest cause for Simcha, the great gift of Torah, the great gift, gift of mitzvahs. So the role of Simcha in Avodah Hashem is a not insignificant one. Sometimes people um, are a little uncomfortable, especially people in the more conventional or involved in the more conventional forms of practicing their Vodas Hashem. They hear the word Simcha and they immediately associate it with um, some of the more excessive or extravagant displays of joy, which are typically associated with mystics, in modern context with Hasidus, and even more modern context with Kalbach adherents. And uh, that's certainly one legitimate formula for Avodah Hashem. But those who aren't attracted to those formulas sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable applying or considering the word Simcha. It's almost as if the word Simcha has been hijacked. Not intentionally, but in people's minds, the word has been hijacked or kidnapped by certain sects. And it is unavailable or incompatible to others. It's important to remind ourselves um, of the value and the the um, function of simcha within general human health, within general human psychology, um, but more importantly, or if equally important, within the the religious psyche, the religious psyche of human being. The Erechas Chaim, excuse me, the well-known anonymously written Musr Sefer, dedicates a significant section to simcha. Um, perhaps it's one of the largest sections in the entire Erechas Sadikim. Um, uncharacteristically so. You would not expect, and this is certainly not a mystical sefer, it's not a, um, a Kabbalistic sefer, it's certainly not a Hasidic sefer. Um, part of it is, as I mentioned earlier, because his simcha is not the effusive, ebullient, expressive joy as much as the inner sense of conviction, comfort, um, the, the internal commitment to the events of a per- person's life, even events which may seem crushing and difficult, but to just sort of accept them based on bitachon. There's a very strong association in the Archa Sadikim, in the ninth, uh, the ninth gate, the ninth shar, the ninth chapter, between simcha and, of all things, emuna, bitachon, person who's invested, who is suffused with emuna and bitachon, is able to accept the vicissitudes and the evolutionary changes of life with greater poise and greater magnanimity because he realizes that there's a plan to the madness, that there's a method, so to speak, to the mad- or to the perceived madness. Um, alternatively, there could be forms of joy that are very dangerous and very hostile to religious growth. Um, if we describe the experience of schok as opposed to simcha, Certainly, the former, the former term, the term of schok, would not be regarded as favorably, would not be seen as positively. Um, laughing, frivolity, um, irresponsible behavior. One could almost uh, describe schok as not just frivolous behavior, but almost escapist behavior. Um, comedy has always served as a form of opiate 
or coping tactic. It's a therapeutic effect, and in many cases, there is a um, very healthy therapeutic effect. Certainly, comedy, humor, relaxation, and to a degree, escapist opportunities are necessary within the religious lifestyle and within any human lifestyle as a coping tactic. Sometimes stress builds and um, frustration mounts and relieving the focus upon the agents or causes of that frustration, literally escaping, hopefully momentarily, not permanently, from that encounter, from that confrontation, as a very necessary and vital mechanism for the maintenance of human health and of religious well-being as well. Um, one can certainly sense that therapeutic aspect in the juxtaposition between Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and Sukkot, not that Sukkot um, relaxes religious experience, but it really it alters it. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur brings a lot of tension, a lot of um, vexation, a lot of uh, self-introspection and um, examination and personal agony and anxiety as to the failures that uh, we've met in, during the year and, and inability to meet our own potential and hopefully some of that process has been cathartic and rejuvenative and in the wake of that rejuvenation and rehabilitation, HaKadosh Baruch Hu changes the mode from stress, pressure and guilt to joy um, and literally escape. We, we, we walk away from certain um, modalities of Rosh Hashanah Kippur not from religion, but from that type of focused self-incrimination almost. And the sukkah may symbolize some of that escapism. Um, but very often, humor is employed not as a healthy component or ingredient within the overall maintenance of religious opportunity, but as a, um, as a form of denial um, to prevent too focused uh, consideration of serious ideas. Certainly the Ba'ali Musar saw the concept of Schok and Leitzanus as a deterrent, and a very unhealthy deterrent. Um, almost a vaccination against Tochacha. The Rambam writes in Uchos Tshuva that although Tshuva is an opportunity, which by definition is available to every man, the greater the sinner, the greater the need, and hopefully the greater the access to the world of Tshuva, and by definition, tshuva as an implementation of Bechir Chavshis cannot be annulled or cannot be denied. There are certain states of the human experience which can severely, severely hamper the opportunity of tshuva. And one of them, the Rambam writes, is Sonia Satochacha, someone who dislikes productive but critical input from others or from himself. And certainly, we're all familiar with moments which comedy, levity, sarcasm is employed to um, to defend against either direct critical statements. person, sometimes a Rebbe or a friend will offer an idea, a concept, uh, hopefully productively and constructively, and it will be shot down or rejected in a barrage of sarcasm or cynicism. And that's the same coping mechanism that should be engaged or <coughs> employed in a balanced way, is being employed as, as an absolute deterrent, is to stifle any form of serious consideration of ideas. Um, so, that's one danger of, of Leitzanus or of Schok. Certainly another hidden danger, whereas Leitzanus and Schok 
um, typically humorous associated. People who are humorous and um, comedic tend to have a quick wit, tend to be very bright. It takes a certain amount of creativity, of intelligence to be able to not just witness people, witness experiences, consider ideas, but to evaluate them, to be able to apply the classic forms and techniques of humor, exaggeration, surprise, um, confounding social norms, engaging in bizarre. These are certain classic forms of comedy which take a high degree of intelligence. Uh, Typically, comedians are blessed with higher, pure intelligence. I don't say more wisdom, it's certainly more intelligence and, and pure IQ, and they're able to employ that wit in the service of comedy, in the service of humor. Very often, humor becomes self de- uh, becomes deprecating, condescending, haughty, and arrogant to others. Uh, when other people are the source of your humor, or ideas are the source of your humor, so it's not just that constructive and important ideas worthy of serious consideration are completely dis- debunked or cast aside by the experience of humor, but people themselves, ideas, are presented as inferior based on the employment of humor. There's one very, very classic form of humor called satire, in which the ridiculous tendencies of an institution, of an organization, of a political system, of a country, of a people, are highlighted, and the audience of that satire is meant to feel horror and um, contempt towards the subject of satire. Um, But the the entire um, process of satire is a hierarchical one, where the author of that satire will be uh, employing humor with a clear intent to devalue and to defame the subject, to defame the subject of humor and of satire in the eyes of the audience. Um, Recently, there was a very interesting article in the New York Times that appeared about, I would say about a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, uh, June 2008, more or less, that um, neurologists have discovered a certain part of the brain that's the source of sarcasm, and that people who are sarcastic have a higher, I forget the exact details, but that sarcasm is not just a developed or um, assimilated taste, it's not just an acquired taste, but has certain neurological, biological roots, certain brain mechanisms and brain patterns, people of greater IQ. Fascinating article, but something which many people sensed intuitively. So there are two moral concerns. One is the employment of schok, um, leitzanos, derision, to escape serious consideration, serious contemplation of ideas, of serious matters. Um, Second of all, the employment of schok to deprecate and denigrate others, whether they be other people, be other ideas. Um, Just the, the gaiva and arrogance that sometimes is associated with humor and with comedy. The Gemara and Salta speaks about four different groups of people that cannot in any way um, embrace the Shrina. And one of these groups is a Kas of Leitzim. And one has to wonder whether this is a punishment or this is just a reality. Um, a group of people who, so to speak, feed off of each other's contagious sarcasm and cynicism. People who spend their day laughing at others um, on the one hand, there's that arrogance I spoke about before, and that arrogance itself, that um, holier-than-thou, or maybe higher-than-thou condescension may render them 
unfit for HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence, and they receive an onesh, but they spend their whole day laughing and jeering, sneering and ridiculing others um, and ideas, so perhaps they'll never develop the serious-mindedness and focused religious attention to merit the Shekhinah, to even consider the Shekhinah. It's not really a, a punishment, a result. It's not a, it's not a penalty, but a consequence of the types of people they've conditioned themselves to be. Um, the first Pasuk, in, or the first Parak in Tehillim, Isha So the Medrash associates the term let's with Korach. Korach was the consummate, the, uh, the prototypical let's. And we don't really see Korach laughing much, but we do see Korach, the demagogue, the sarcastic cynic who tries to ridicule the system of halacha by identifying and locating its one flaw. Every system is flawed. Every system is going to provide an illogical, almost preposterous situation. It doesn't render the entire system flawed. Karach talks to Moshe as well. If an entire beged has treles, do the strings have to contain treles? If an entire house has sifrei Torah, does the door have to have a mezuzah. According to another medrash, she spins the tale of a poor woman who is completely oppressed and persecuted by the series of matnos kehuna of the of the gifts that a kohen deserves and the mitzvot that uh, that in her case tend to um, tyrannize her and prevent her from supporting her family. Well, of course, there are situations in halacha that will be imbalanced, and the local based in the local authorities will try to restore that balance. So this almana won't have to give as much tzedakah. Well, of course. You can spin a system of an entire house of Sifrei Torah, which would render the mezuzah a bit um, almost secondary or an afterthought. Berkhadish Baruch wants every house to have a mezuzah at the doorpost. Most houses do not contain multiple Sifrei Torah. Even if they do, the doorpost serves a unique function, the transit point. And every good comedian, every good cynic is able to locate the negativity within anything. Everything is a mixed bag. And most people are enthused and enjoy and celebrate uh, the positive contributions of a person, of a system, of an idea. With a comedian, and in this case, Karach is the comedian um, par excellence. He's not just a comedian, he's a cynic. He's not just a cynic, he's a demagogue. He attempts to debase and to deconstruct the system of halacha and to prove it worthless by locating the one negative situation where a, an almana will be persecuted through tzedakah rather than seeing tzedakah as a general restorative, socially restorative element to maintain the needs and the prosperity even of the indigent and less able to fend for themselves. Um, and Karach, therefore, is referred to as a letz. So simcha is a mixed bag, and that's why the Rambam is very careful. In Hilchas Deos, in the beginning, when he describes the golden mean, he wants to assure us and wants to ensure against excessive employment of simcha there's a place for simcha, and there's a equally important need to guard against unhealthy and unfavorable expressions of simcha, typically known to Chazalas, Schok, and Litzanas.